Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. And as always, I'm joined by members of the research team to talk about major events happening in Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the cryptocurrency ecosystem. This week, we talk about OpenSea tweeting that they will support Solana and Solana-based NFTs on their large NFT marketplace. We discuss Ripple CEO Chris Larson's $5 million campaign in coordination with Greenpeace to convince Bitcoin to move off proof of work and switch to proof of stake. And lastly, we discuss some introspective pieces written by Pete Rizzo and Vitalik Buterin on Bitcoin and Ethereum's various visions for the past and future. I'm joined today uh, by Christine Kim and Saul Kadir. Uh, great to have you guys. Great to be here. Thanks, Alex. Awesome to be here. Excited. Awesome. So let's kick it off, Saul, with you talking about OpenSea and uh, Solana. What's happening there? Yeah, so uh, this is super exciting stuff. Um, actually, not even that shocking. Uh, these rumors have been swirling since late January when Jane Wong uh, identified that Phantom and Solana were being worked on by the OpenSea team by an internal leak, it appears. So this has been in the works for a while. Uh, OpenSea teased this integration in a tweet uh, recently, and it's going to actually be implemented in April. Uh, no firm date has been given yet, but Solana would be the fourth supported blockchain on the OpenSea platform following ETH, Polygon, and Clayton. Um, this challenges, essentially, you know, there's, there's kind of a few takeaways here, but I think the first is this move positions OpenSea as a competitor to Solana NFT marketplace juggernauts, namely Magic Eden. So Magic Eden currently, I think, dominates with around 90% of all NFT trading on Solana, according to, to Dune. And that's been pretty consistent over time. Um, they, they, their business model is pretty similar to OpenSea. I think they charge 2%, OpenSea charges 2.5%. Um, the, the only difference with Magic Eden is they actually have this launchpad feature where uh, the kind of help creators launch collections and get some initial hype and uh, primary sales. So that's something they have that OpenSea doesn't. So it's unclear if OpenSea will actually capture all of their, their market share per se, but certainly they'll, they'll chip into it. And I think what's really interesting about that is um, from the perspective of a user of NFTs generally, the fact that OpenSea now trades or will soon trade Solana NFTs unlocks a ton of liquidity um, for users of these NFTs, which is incredible. And it's, it's very exciting, I think, um, for the Solana ecosystem as a whole. You know, people aren't sort of, sort of siloed off into the Solana-only platforms like the Magic Edens of the world, so to speak. Um, and like the kind of crude analogy I'm going to make here um, to kind of help contextualize this is if you think about like the sneaker resale market and people often look at sneakers as similar to NFTs in many ways because they're they're scarce uh, signaling goods. Uh, you know, you look at your stock X or goats of the world. These are platforms that start off solely kind of devoted to helping people resell things like authentic Jordan sneakers. Uh, this OpenSea move is like when eBay decided to just hop in on selling authenticated sneakers, right? So they have this massive, massive user base already baked in that they can tap into and kind of start capturing this market as well. That's kind of what I like in the move too. Um, in terms of like comps, you know, we haven't 
necessarily seen anything exactly like this, but a good comp would just be to look at a side chain like Polygon on OpenSea and look at their metrics. Reason being, Polygon is also pretty cheap to operate on, low gas fees. And if we look at those metrics, so Polygon compared to ETH, which is where the vast majority of OpenSea's activity is on, um, Polygon does about one to two million dollars daily in volume compared to 100 to 200 million dollars in volume on ETH. Um, really interesting Polygon in terms of like wallets that have connected to the Polygon network on OpenSea, 1.1 million versus 1.6 million for ETH. And finally, monthly active wallets on Polygon, there's about 166,000 monthly active wallets in Polygon versus about 500,000 monthly active wallets on ETH. Um, so, so these kind of metrics will may, might indicate, I would say like a floor in terms of the how well this integration might do. I'm more bullish though. I think it'll probably blow away past these numbers simply because all of Solana's NFTs are already sitting at a market cap of close to $2 billion. If you look at, uh, well, there used to be called Soul Analysis, now they're called Hyperspace. Um, and, and also Magic Eden is doing about $40 million in volume. Uh, at least in the past month. So it's it's a little bit more than than what um, Polygon is doing. It's in the same ballpark. So I think that's kind of like the framework I'm using to think about this, but certainly it's it's very exciting, at least from a usability standpoint too. Saul, to what extent do you think that this announcement um, validates and kind of boosts the reputation of Solana's NFT marketplace. Like it, it kind of gives it like a stamp of approval that it's here to stay, that OpenSea is, is integrating it into its platform. Um, or alternatively, would you say that um, this kind of integration doesn't really do much to Solana's already like booming NFT marketplace? No, I think I agree with the, the former point. Um, like OpenSea's, it's a massive juggernaut in NFTs. We all know this. They have tons of capital, but more importantly, they have opportunity costs for making decisions on features. Uh, they have a thousand different priorities they could be working on, and they decided to make Solana effectively the, the next blockchain they supported. I, I never even heard of Clayton, to be honest. So it's really just been a, a race between ETH and, and Polygon. Uh, now, this is pretty big, I think, and it kind of validates Solana as a like one of their use cases being focused more on the NFT side. We've already kind of seen hints of this with, with Justin Khan's thing, Fractal and, and focusing gaming NFTs on Solana. Now you have OpenSea uh, and like all of the liquidity afforded by just being on that platform. Uh, even if most of the liquidity is on other chains, I do think there's, there's some um, benefits to, to being there. And like Saul, we can expect can't we open C to continue adding support for additional blockchains over time? I mean, I kind of think of this as like a cryptocurrency exchange, right? They're a marketplace. Like they they likely will just add anything that has legitimate volume. And in, in... yeah, yeah, totally agree. I mean, you know, we saw the same play playbook uh, executed by Coinbase over the years as they added new assets to trade. Uh, we would expect the same to happen with, with OpenSea because they make money on fees. Ultimately, they don't really care what people are trading on. Uh, certainly though, I think there's a bit of a, it, it, this is interesting just because there's a bit of technical risk with, because uh, OpenSea operates completely uh, via smart contracts. And so they there's some technical risk with adding a new chain um, in terms of exploits. So it probably will be a bit slower 
to start seeing other chains be added over time. But, uh, and it was also interesting that they chose Solana, which is not EVM compatible. Um, so I think it does, to Christine's point, does really speak a lot about how they view that ecosystem and the momentum they have. Um, but yeah, to your point, I do, I totally see them just adding more chains over time and being very chain agnostic. Yeah, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. You're right. Adding Matic is a very sim much simpler proposition than adding Solana from a technical perspective. Um, great. Well, let's move on. I want to keep this thing pithy today. Um, the next story we're talking about is Ripple CEO and co-founder Chris Larson. Um, he announced a $5 million uh, campaign in coordination with Greenpeace um, to change Bitcoin's proof of work uh, uh, to proof of stake. And um, now Larson, uh, he very clearly states that this is a personal effort on his behalf and not Ripple Labs' effort. Um, of course, Ripple in litigation with the SEC separately over their token, and that he spent, he says, the greater part of several years working on climate change issues and that this is important to him. The campaign was called Change the Code, Not the Climate. And the mission is, quote, stopping Bitcoin from polluting the planet um, and plans to run ads in mainstream publications and social media platforms. Um, so the press release and and the uh, and this website they have, cleanupbitcoin.com, uh, you know, I, I, I have to take significant issue with it because there's several um, glaring inaccuracies or, or even things that sort of belie uh, Larson's lack of understanding of the Bitcoin uh, network and community. First, Larson claims that um, they need only change the minds of 50 people, um, developers and and um, and devs and uh, sorry, devs and, and firms like like exchanges to change Bitcoin's code. Um, that's an important first statement. He then uh, they then go on to make four points about why Bitcoin's use of proof of work is bad, and I'm going to talk about all four of those. But at the top, I mean predicating uh, any kind of success this campaign would have is the idea that they put forth that merely changing 50 uh, people or entities' minds would change Bitcoin. That's categorically false, and we know why that's false, and it's not theoretical. Um, during the block size wars in 2016 and 2017, virtually all major Bitcoin companies at the time and miners um, supported a uh, hard fork upgrade to Bitcoin that would double the block size. Um, which was opposed by users, um, aka nodes um, of the network. And ultimately, node runners basically called, played chicken um, with miners and won and, and showed that um, with that Bitcoin really exists in this governance triumvirate uh, between miners, devs, and nodes. And that nodes, um, even non-mining nodes, do possess um, you know, the ability, if they act uh, in sufficient numbers, to veto the actions of miners or devs. Um, and, and that actually, without going deeply into this concept of the government governance triumvirate, each of these parties possesses some, some veto power over the others. Um, so basically, you know, even if, um, you know, Larson and his group can convince core devs to create a fork of Bitcoin, that's what the devs would have to do. When he says convince the devs, he'd have to get some devs to create a proof of stake version of Bitcoin. Um, and if he could convince exchanges to carry it, you know, to be clear, that's not even that hard of a, of a um, pitch to exchanges. They carry forks of Bitcoin uh, for trading all the time. The issue is what the, what the nodes um, from a network standpoint and then the economic majority 
would consider Bitcoin, right? And so essentially there's there's really no way uh, for this to happen. And um, because users aren't going to call whatever proof of stake for Chris Larson's campaign comes up with Bitcoin, he can create one certainly, and he can you know argue that that is a better version of Bitcoin. In fact, he's well within his right to do that as is anyone because Bitcoin's a fully open source project, but there's virtually zero chance that he can change the code. And I recommend, um, Larson read Jonathan Beer's book, The Block Size Wars, which covers this in great detail. Um, uh, before I go into these other points, either of you guys want to chime in on anything here? I mean, I thought this was particularly tone deaf and lacking in historical knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a quick kind of point that's just piggybacking on it. I mean, th this whole, I guess this whole like diatribe against proof of work, it, it feels to me like it's almost a test this is like a litmus test to the robustness of proof of work networks versus proof of stake. I mean, I can't help but just like think about that. Like, like proof of work in some ways is like the three branches of a government where, where all the different stakeholders are kind of providing checks and balances to each other. Whereas proof of stake, you know, the coin holders can change whatever they want at any time. It's, it's it concentrates a lot of power and like the fact that he can, the fact that he he can't necessarily do that and has to effectively convince the the miners on Bitcoin to, to adopt this change is like a real life example of how this these two differences philosophically are, are playing out in real time, which is interesting to watch. Yeah, there's no doubt that um, proof of stake, I think, in my opinion, makes it easier to um, interject uh, some kind of upgrade like this, right? I, I mean, coordinating proof of work um, is much more difficult. And, and I think it is true. I mean, like, like we're not going to do the whole proof of work, proof of stake debate now. Um, but I think, you know, it's obvious that the unfortunable costliness that um, proof of work inter, uh, put, you know, puts into the protocol is a, a powerful uh, thing that secures Bitcoin. Um, obviously, you know, whether or not Bitcoin's usage of electricity is um, excessive or, you know, even not enough is in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, if Bitcoin is the most important thing in humanity's history, then I'm sure people would support a lot more energy, right? If it's something that doesn't work, then they would support less. Go ahead, Christine. I think that it's also debatable whether or not being able to change the protocol code more easily is actually something that should be frowned upon for a blockchain like Ethereum, the ability to be able to change your code base more efficiently, I think is, is something that developers want and are actively pursuing ways of governance to, to pursue. I agree that like energy consumption for a, a blockchain is in the eye of the eye of a beholder. Um, but if there is a, an alternative consensus protocol that is known to have similar equal security considerations and security levels that just doesn't consume as much energy i guess the question is is why not like what what's really preventing what's like the real argument against technology that is is better in 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 some respects in terms of energy consumption and doesn't sacrifice um, and doesn't have trade-offs in in the other areas of of security and and blockchain consensus I, I would argue for the most part, there aren't any that uh, have don't have trade-offs that, um, but I think there, there certainly are other ways to achieve a credibly neutral consensus. I think a lot of what's, um, and let's talk about this in a minute. I want to go through because we're going to talk about sort of Vitalik and Pete Rizzo looking back on 
Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I think this is a bit relevant in some ways, but um, no, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to consider other, you know, consensus and civil resistance mechanisms, no doubt. What I do think is, um, first of all, impractical is to think that Bitcoiners are going to change um, because they, you know, run ads. And let, let me just talk about these four points that their website, cleanupbitcoin.com, argues as justification for this, because I think basically all of them are, are quite misleading, if not outright false. For one, the first one they say is that recent estimates show Bitcoin uses more electricity than all of Sweden. Um, it's quickly surpassing more countries, according to the University of Cambridge, unless its price is decoupled from its energy use, Bitcoin will drive devastating climate impacts. So Bitcoin obviously uses a lot of electricity, right? But, you know, I would argue it, it also secures over a trillion dollars in value. Um, and I, there could, so again, whether it uses too much is in the eye of the beholder, but also not all electricity is the same. And, and the University of Cambridge study is an estimate um, that's from the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. They're great researchers that have been covering Bitcoin mining for a long time. That is an estimate on the total electri electrical usage. It doesn't say anything about whether it's too much or whether it's bad for the environment. And it doesn't say that whether its price is decoupled from its usage uh, or not, Bitcoin will drive devastating climate impact. So just to be clear, that's that's this campaign speaking. And then again, you have to think about energy mix, right? We're looking for a sustainable energy mix, right? And And most of the evidence that we have shows that Bitcoin miners are the most um, use the most percentage of renewable energy than basically any industry on earth. So I, I dispute that simply using a lot of energy is inherently bad for the environment or will, quote, drive devastating climate impacts. In fact, it, you know, there's some evidence that Bitcoin mining could even help um, promote and make economically viable the development of additional renewable and sustainable energy resources. So um, I, I think this is a little bit of a non sequitur, but that big number, which, by the way, um, you know, those get used a lot, sounds really scary to people. But, you know, don't look at, you know, home clothes dryers or Christmas lights or let alone something like the airline industry. Right. You'll find the numbers get pretty scary there also. Um, the second point they make is that Bitcoin alone could help warm the planet more than two degrees. A report in the journal Nature Climate Change found that if Bitcoin becomes widely adopted, it could produce enough carbon dioxide emissions to warm the planet above two degrees Celsius. So this is categorically false and widely debunked. This is literally fake news, I'm confident in stating. This is based on Mora et al., which is a, a, essentially a comment, not even really a full uh, thing in, in nature climate change um, that basically has been debunked several times by other academic reports, but we don't even really need to look at those to understand why it's so absurd. Um, just from from the the approach that was taken in this famous paper, and you know, hat tip to Nick Carter at Castle Island Ventures, who's been fighting the Mora et al. fud for years now. But it, it basically relies on existing minor data to sort of predict from from 2018 to then sort of extrapolate um, what hash rate could be. It devises a per transaction energy cost of Bitcoin essentially by dividing the total energy. Uh, usage of the network by the number of transactions processed. And then it makes assumptions about how many transactions might be processed per year and applies a growth trajectory for how many that could uh, be in the future. And then uh, it says that it could grow to tens of billions of transactions per year. And then it multiplies that 
essentially made up extrapolated figure by uh, the the number they came up with of that native per transaction energy cost. Um, and then they assume the energy mix won't change and 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 then they multiply it by some stuff to get two degrees. Basically, all this whole methodology is ludicrous. Bitcoin transactions don't like use energy, right? Like mining a block does, an empty block and a full block use the same amount of electricity, <laughs> right? So the, even the most basic premise here is false, let alone that you can have um, one transaction that has many economically, you know, uh, spends in it, uh, right? So like an economically dense transaction will, will be one transaction, but could re rep, uh, represent payments to 50 or 100 individuals, right? So, um, and it doesn't take into account things like off-chain transactions or any of this stuff. And then simply these, ex building the entire uh, number based on this transaction per en energy per transaction use um, basically makes the rest of the study totally flawed. So um, just, I'm not gonna go any further, but feel free to just Google Nick Carter Mora at all. And um, you can see more, Christine, did you have, did you want us to add something? Maura should read the on-chain fundamentals report that I wrote for Galaxy Digital to learn more about how transactions on Bitcoin actually don't always represent real economic activity and can overstate or understate them yep. in situations. Exactly. They should read, they should read that great report. And by the way, if you're listening, Maura et al., uh, you can check that out at onchain.report. Um, all right, I'm going to fly through these last two very quickly because this is taking a little while and we have a way more interesting topic, but it says Bitcoin's resurrecting fossil fuels. That's that's all basically because some miners are known to have purchased um, coal-fired uh, power plants. And that, and then they say they're using fracked natural gas um, and striking deals with the oil industry in Texas to use flare gas to fuel their operations. Well, that is true, and that's been widely reported as basically good for the environment. Flared methane um, traps 84 times as much heat as carbon dioxide, and most Mostly this is um, a ton of flared methane gets released when you pull up, uh, a, a methane gets released when you pull up crude oil. Um, and so both ConocoPhillips and ExxonMobil, I think in the last couple of weeks, it came out that they're both actually running pilots to convert that flare, that natural gas on site uh, using generators into electricity to then mine Bitcoin with. Um, it makes it profitable to reduce the carbon uh, carbon, uh, the, the greenhouse gas emissions of energy. and. Um, we're you know looking at some long-term data on this, but it, it could have significant benefit for reducing the carbon emissions um, of uh, and and carbon the intense carbon greenhouse gas emissions of the oil and gas industry worldwide. Um, so this is actually, in my opinion, evidence against their argument, not for it. And then yes, a software code change would reduce Bitcoin's energy use by ninety-nine point nine percent. Yes, proof of stake does not use significant energy, right? And, and the civil resistance is achieved through locking capital rather than uh, computation. So I won't you know, dispute that um, Ethereum, when it moves to proof of stake, will use significantly less energy overall than, than proof of work chains like Bitcoin. All right, let's just move on. That was very long, um, and uh, but I, th I thought it merited a rebuttal. So uh, Christine, tell us a lot of introspection in the air. Uh, Pete Rizzo, one of Bitcoin's sort of well, most well-known uh, historians and Vitalik Buterin, of course, a co-founder of Ethereum, they both wrote really interesting pieces this week, um, sort of looking back and, and sort of looking at the development roadmaps and decisions that the two communities have made. Yeah, I think that both of these pieces were really fueled by just how far both Bitcoin and Ethereum have got, come in terms of adoption. And now the more 
bullish and kind of like widespread beliefs of just how big these crypto assets um, could become in the world, what kind of role they could play in really like, in really, I guess, like unseating and, and revolutionizing and changing a lot of our, our the traditional systems and structures that we have in our day to day, which is why the visions behind these protocols are so important to, to talk about and discuss. I'll just give a quick summary of, of both articles. Uh, for, the, for the one written by Pete Rizzo, he basically identified three broad camps of stakeholders, um, individuals, basically Bitcoiners who have different visions of how they think Bitcoin, um, the value proposition of Bitcoin. These three camps are the monetary maximalists, network maximalists, and platform maximalists. And the monetary maximalists are, I would say, the most conservative of all three groups. They believe that the intrinsic value of Bitcoin is is in its unchanging nature, that its value proposition is in the fact that Bitcoin doesn't, um, it's, not, it's not an easy or even feasible option to, to change something about Bitcoin like Larson's suggestion for a proof of work um, transition to proof of stake. Network maximalists and platform maximalists, on the other hand, take a different approach to Bitcoin's intrinsic value in that it's not that the protocol itself and the code base should be unchanging, but that looking ahead, the protocol itself is difficult to change. And that in and of itself is, is a very valuable proposition, that there is that triumvirate of, of governance that sometimes, you know, protocols or code changes like the, the, um, the taproot upgrade can go through and can change parts of, of Bitcoin's code, um, but that these, upgrades take a long time and, and are hard to, to, to really get through the governance process. Um, Alex, you were gonna say something. No, no, I just, I think that's, um, I think you had it right. It is a Bitcoin triumvirate issue. It takes, it makes it hard to, to upgrade, right? And to your point about upgrading Ethereum and, and that that being positive for many networks that seek rapid technological innovation, but um, for Bitcoin, um, it is hard, but it you know, can still happen. It can still happen. I mean, I, I think this is like the main distinction between the monetary maximalists and then the other two camps, the network and the platform maximalist. Um, within the, the last two camps of network maximalists and platform maximalists, the platform maximalists are, are really um, true believers of the fact that Bitcoin is competing against other alternative blockchains out there for users and for demand. Whereas um, network maximalists, while they do believe that there is room for improvements and progressions and code changes, believes that the intrinsic value of Bitcoin is not in direct competition with any blockchain out there. Um, so these three visions for what gives Bitcoin value um, skews what these three camps want to see out of Bitcoin in the future and how they look at Bitcoin's history. Um, monetary maximalists are obviously um, they're focused and, and, and very hardcore about the economics of Bitcoin, the unchanging nature of Bitcoin. Net platform maximalists, on the other hand, will continue to push on Bitcoin, um, very ambitious code changes and upgrades, um, be it with smart contract functionality, uh, so on and so forth. And, and with network maximalism, I think um, there's, there's, a, there's a section of, of Bitcoin believers who really believe in 
the ways in which Bitcoin as a technology can change the world, um, but also that it doesn't actually need to compete with any of what the crypto industry is 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 producing right now in terms of alternative blockchains. Um, and and the main point is really like marketing Bitcoin and like pushing it out in terms of like adoption to as many uh, people as possible. Um, so talking about those three camps and just setting the stage for 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 how that relates to Bitcoin's vision and future. Vitalik's piece is very similar in that it sets the stage for different visions about what Ethereum should have done in key points of its history. Um, Vitalik calls this piece, the roads not taken. And he asks a series of questions of, of forks in the road for Ethereum. The first one being, could protocol developers on Ethereum could they have gone with just a more simpler version of proof of stake rather than the one they're pursuing right now with the upcoming merge, with the, with the beacon chain? The second question is, should protocol developers have added more or less features to the Ethereum virtual machine, which is basically the mechanism on Ethereum that allows smart contract execution, the execution of code of arbitrary complexity? And then the third question is about Ethereum supply distribution. When it first launched, there was a, a certain amount of coins distributed to holders that at the time was a significant percentage of the total circulating supply of Ethereum. Now it's not so much. A lot of that supply has become more distributed over time. Um, so in each of these three cases, in the way that Vitalik sees it is that there were two camps, two visions, in terms of where Ethereum could have gone down. One of them is pursuing a vision of a more simpler blockchain, a blockchain that has less features, less functionality, but is easier to understand and secure and, and progress and maintain. The other vision is a blockchain that is highly performant, has way more functions and is continuing, continuing to, to support more advanced applications for Bitcoin. And to my, in my mind, it kind of sounds like two different camps um, that Rizzo highlighted in his piece, which is the monetary maximalists versus the network and the platform maximalists. Do we think yeah, of, they, yeah. Sorry, they certainly, I, I think that's a great point to make because the, the monetary maximalists as described by Rizzo, they are such for a different reason, um, but they do favor essentially an unchanging um, and you know a basically unchanging base layer whose job is to promote that asset. Not Certainly not like those platform maximalists who wanted to compete as a technology platform. I think that's a really, it's a, I don't know if this is coincidence or if it's perhaps it's just these realities of blockchain design that there, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? I mean, Ethereum is has been grappling with many of the same uh, questions that Bitcoiners uh, grappled with for years, right? And, and continue to grapple with. Yeah, I think that the topic of decentralization and it being the, the goal of not just Bitcoiners, all three camps of, of, of the people that I, I discussed, be it platform, max platform maximalist, network maximalist, or monetary maximalist. Um, of course, decentralization is such a big um, core and integral to, to Bitcoin's intrinsic value. But I think the value, the decisions that Vitalik laid out in his piece discussing why they went for a much more complex version of proof of stake when they could have gone for something much more complex is because even Ethereans share this 
idea that part of Ethereum's intrinsic value is decentralization. And yes, both of these networks, their use cases are, are different, um, but it was interesting, I agree with you, to, to see the parallels of, of, of where they think values overlap. And one of them, a big part of both Bitcoin and Ethereum's um, development roadmap and that's changed their, that's shaped their code, the kinds of code changes that they've pursued um, is this idea that uh, blockchains should continue to favor and uphold decentralization more so than say scalability or um, short-term improvements like, um, I don't know, like low fee transactions, you know? Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I really felt like for both of these pieces, they were outlining interesting ways, interesting lenses through which to um, view the direction and the future of blockchain protocols. I, I kind of felt like Vitalik's piece was more championing and validating the decisions that Ethereum protocol developers made in the past rather than highlighting the different paths that could have been taken and the advantages of those paths not taken. Um, and I think that one other uh, kind of important realization that I personally came to was the was the fact that I don't actually think it's possible to pursue a vision for a pure and simple blockchain while also pursuing a vision for a highly performant and functional blockchain. Um, and I think that there are just inherent, I guess, divergences in those roads that I don't think, um, I don't think that in the long term it's ever possible to, to have a blockchain that does both. You kind of need to pick one or the other, but I'm open to hearing other sides of this. And if we think that I'm being a little bit too much of a realist here. Um, so curious to, to hear what you and you, Alex and Saul think. Yeah, I mean, I think complexity is, is, an, is a fascinating part here, right? And it's with Peter Salagi, I can never say this poor man's name, I'm sorry. Uh, the Ethereum core developer wrote about, right? And, he ta also talked about this. We mentioned this on the podcast last week, but he had that Twitter thread explaining that Ethereum has, you know, maybe become too complex, right? And that a goal for all system design should be simplicity. Um, you know, I it is a, a fascinating question. I think it goes very much to what we wrote in our Ready Layer One report, um, which was, you know, we kind of took Bitcoin and set it aside when it comes to the technology platform battle between layer one blockchains, right? Which is really the platform maximalist view of a blockchain, that it is a platform for apps and dApps and other things. It is a technology solution more than, you know, an inherently valuable thing in its own right. And we set Bitcoin aside, much like the monetary maximalists in Pete Rizzo's construction do. We said that it, it doesn't play that game. It doesn't seek to be a platform uh, for technology innovation, so much as it is a decentralized network, uh, commodity money network for protecting the value of Bitcoin, the asset, right? And the decentralization of it as the asset. That's basically what we wrote in Ready Layer One. And because we said that Ethereum is also trying to, is instead mostly trying to be a technology platform, that, that it finds itself constantly, um, you know, uh, faced with challenger networks that have the, you know, latest and greatest bells and whistles, right? And so I, I, I do think that by playing that game, um, 
And perhaps that's the only game to play. I don't think Ethereum or any other network could play Bitcoin's game in a way that was credible or challenging. So you basically got to play some other game. And obviously Ethereum is the leader in this space, right? I mean, in the smart contract tech platform space, clearly. Um, but by playing that game, um, you're playing that game. And it, it, I feel like there's constant demand to always add new features and complexity. And it's um, it, it's something that like really never ends, I suppose. I think that's the curse of viewing Ethereum more as a platform maximalist of, like you said, constantly having to add more features and compete with the next, you know, newest uh, alternative layer one blockchain out there. But I feel like earlier on in Ethereum's history, there was more of a group that that leaned more heavily towards being network maximalists and that Ethereum has a developer community, a user community, a level of decentralization. Um, just things that are more intrinsic to the platform that can never be replicated regardless of any other alternative blockchains out there. Um, and I wonder if, if Ethereum is, is mistakenly going down more of a path where they don't, they sacrifice some of those intrinsic values like decentralization in favor of new features out faster, like competing more directly with, with alternative layer one blockchains. Um, and right. I agree with you that at least on the to topic of like monetary maximalist, that's not something that any, like even Ethereum really ever competes with because that monetary, the use of Bitcoin as like, almost like, like a reserve currency is just, is not something Ethereum will ever, is not something Ethereum was ever designed to do. Um, but I think that this conversation, this framework around the network versus platform maximalist for Ethereum and whether or not Ethereum continues to grow its intrinsic versus extrinsic value is, is one that um, will, is very relevant um, to, the, to the Ethereum conversation. Yeah, just a quick follow on, because this is all really interesting discussion, uh, especially when we're talking about uh, like the platform aspect and the complexity over time with Ethereum. Um, this is a huge problem, I think. I mean, I've been watching this space for a while and it's it's one of the reasons why like your Solana's, Luna's, Avalanche's of the world were able to come out. Uh, if you just sort of forget about crypto for a second, if you're just writing software, it's much, 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 much easier to write software than to like refactor it. Um, so that's why like if you're a startup, um, it's pretty easy to get someone to build you an app, right? But it's in two years when like you have a bunch of new features that have to somehow integrate with your existing tech stack, like no one knows how to read that code. Um, it could be written poorly. It, it's really hard to test. It's much easier just to throw it all out and like just build a new app with all the new features you want. And you actually see this play out in, in the real world today. Like the best example of this that I tell people about is eBay. If you look at their website, it's horrendously slow and it's really, really, really cumbersome to use. Uh, just try like looking at like your purchase history. Like it takes like four or five clicks and uh, everything loads slowly. All the layouts change. Um, the reason is because like they, they built eBay in the 1990s. No one knew how to write web apps back then, let alone software that's supposed to scale eventually to billions of users. Um, but they can't actually change it that easily without jeopardizing the whole platform. So they have to bolt on all these upgrades to like integrate new payments platforms and scale. Um, whereas you could just create Letgo in like a weekend and it has basically all the same functionality and it's a clean UI. It's actually an impossible problem to like solve eBay's UI. I've looked into this. 
It's it's because of the massive tech debt. And so it reminds me a lot of blockchains. Like you look at Ethereum, they were the first. It's the curse of being the first. You know, they they came out 2014, 2015, uh, before anyone was thinking about this, before they even had users to like actually test this stuff on. And now they're kind of married to a lot of those decisions, uh, especially in crypto, where you can't really reverse protocol level decisions uh, without jeopardizing like a bunch of money at stake. Um, that that seems to me to be the reason why there's so much complexity in Ethereum. Um, and now there's only like five people that can actually work on it. And effectively Ethereum, and this is like an argument Anatoly makes about Solana, which I write about uh, in an upcoming report. Uh, Ethereum to him and to a lot of people, it's like a services organization that moves really slowly because like a handful of people can work on it. Uh, his bet with at least Solana is like, they're also just going to bet on hardware advancing so they don't have to necessarily rely on people over time. It's unclear which, which answer is the right answer, right? But certainly there's a lot of uh, similarities with what's happening here and what's happened historically in tech. That is really fascinating. Uh, Christine, wrap us up here uh, so we can close one thing looking forward um, and into that topic of, of it being just so hard to upgrade blockchains, especially on a protocol level. I think one of the arguments, and, and that's a great reason why the merge is so important and is an event to watch for the entire industry, because that's an example of a, of a situation where a blockchain of Ethereum size in its most fundamental level is going to change its entire consensus protocol. And the payoff from that is, is of course, mainly as we talked about the debate between proof of work and proof of stake, but it's also the question of how much more technical, technical depth and complexity Ethereum is gonna have to take on in order to, in order to stay competitive in the view of platform maximalists, in the, or in the view of, how the space is developing with new technologies. It, it's gonna be executing and rolling out and trying to, to fundamentally change its protocol that has been with it since Genesis, since 2015 when it launched. Um, and that's supposed to happen later this year. So I think we're gonna come back to this discussion to see how well that upgrade goes. Gonna be very interesting. And um, I, I look forward to it when we get to that conversation. I think, you know, for Bitcoin's sake, it, it, it um, there's, I, I personally believe in elements of all three of these, you know, Pete Rizzo groups. I mean, I obviously believe in Bitcoin as a monetary asset. Um, but I think when you think long-term, a lot of the platform and network maximalists worry about, you know, the, the security budget in the long-term and some of the, you know, answers that you get from Bitcoin monetary maximalists are such that, well, you know, someone, you know, Bitcoiners will be so wealthy, they can subsidize mining on the network, right? They essentially make an argument for either out of band payments or, um, you know, mining at a loss, right? And I'm, you know, I think that's a pretty bold argument. Um, it's why I think, plat you know, there's still a lot of people trying to get Bitcoin block space used by more stuff, um, even if it doesn't involve upgrading Bitcoin, right? And so, um, a lot to play out there. I'm, I'm going to release a report at some point soon explaining uh, Bitcoin fees and block space usage that uh, we'll dive into some of that too. Uh, but really interesting stuff there. All right, let's wrap it up with some quick hits. Uh, Ronin, which is the Axie Infinity to ETH bridge, right? Uh, hacked for, I don't know, 600 plus million dollars worth of ETH, maybe 650 million at, at current prices. Um, anybody have a quick take on this? My quick take is that multi-sig I, I, my quick take, I would say, is that multi-signature wallets and 
the bridging technology that is currently being used by to hold millions upon millions of dollars worth of value is these are repetitive case studies showing that the technology is not yet there for prime time. It's not there for a production level, um, production grade, I guess, level of, of reliability um, that hopefully many users will will start to, to take heed of, take the warning of, and um, and recognize that, that, that this technology is, is actively being experimented on. So stake at your own risk. Awesome. MicroStrategy uh, subsidiary closed a $250 million, uh, $205 million loan to buy more BTC. Um, I mean, you know, is anyone surprised? <laughs> they, I don't even know if we need to comment much more on, on Michael Saylor's uh, Bitcoin uh, purchases. The guy, uh, he, he's got a vision and he sticks to it. You got to respect that. Um, so in, in India, I guess legisla legislation passed this week in India that would add a 30% capital gains tax on all crypto gains, um, which will take effect April 1st, as in uh, this week. Wow. <laughs> I mean, my whole question with this, and I don't have the numbers on it right now, but like how how effective is the Indian government at collecting taxes versus like the U.S. government where like tax compliance is probably orders of magnitude higher here? Uh, I only say this because like my my family's from Pakistan. It's like they're infamous for being horrendous at collecting taxes. And like even if the law states you should do this or that, no one actually pays it ever. And so they basically just don't have any revenues coming in. Uh, India is probably different, but I wonder how different is it? Like what spectrum is it, you know, U.S. to like, you know, Pakistan, for instance, that's um, something that well they spent they they made a major uh action a few years ago basically getting rid of a large number of high uh denominated paper bills if you recall yeah, um, yeah. that's right uh, which i think yeah was largely uh stated to be in an effort of of reducing tax uh fraud or, or non-compliance anyway um south korea had something similar but they delayed that until 2023 so um we were just following a little bit of the international news and then um, I guess the Biden administration, they put forth their proposed budget uh, for fiscal 2023. Um, this isn't binding or anything. It's sort of a marker of what the administration is asking for, but it does include some changes uh, to mark-to-market accounting uh, for crypto uh, gains that would essentially, uh, it appears, allow them to do some kind of unrealized tax collection, unrealized gains tax collection on crypto stuff, which I guess tracks with their other efforts uh, to tax billionaires and 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 um, you know change unrealized gain rules more broadly, um, which you know I think Novo said this well. He said it was totally uh, you know not pragmatic uh, on TV, and I totally agree with that. You know how do you pay for gains that you you haven't realized? Um, so I, I don't know. This is just a marker. We'll we'll let Congress sort that out, but obviously a lot of changes expected in the budget before that thing uh goes and then and then just lastly i don't think i don't have a big take on this but earlier this week the senate finally approved appointments uh for four new cftc commissioners um the, the cftc has been operating uh with like a, a less than half full bench of commissioners for a long time now so just you know in the in the scope of in the uh, desire to have some good government here it's nice to see that uh, we've got a full seat now, a full panel now there at the CFTC, and um, obviously the CFTC currently regulates Bitcoin and Ethereum derivatives markets, and, um, you know, we'll see what happens in terms of 
where you know additional or, or future regulatory authority shakes out between existing um, you know lettered uh, federal agencies. So it could be uh, interesting and important development uh, depending on how this shakes out. That is all for today on Galaxy Brains. Thank you, Christine Kim and Saul Kadir for joining me. Um, and we'll see you next week. Have a great weekend.